Hello, and welcome to the first ever episode of Things I Know. I'm Zoe Goodman, and uh, today we're going to talk about the history of timekeeping. So, all the way from sundials to modern clocks uh, on your phone and on your wrist. And we're going to talk about... So many people are into watches, and I myself have gotten into watches over the last, like, six to nine months. uh, And I've learned a lot, and... A lot of people just don't understand why people are into watches, and there's actually so much history and mechanical engineering behind it that an art uh, that has really just truly fascinated me. So I'm just going to talk about all of the stuff that I've learned over the last six months and teach you a little bit about why watches are cool. So to begin, let's start with the sundial. So it's the most rudimentary Uh, form of a clock and you just have a stick in the ground and as the day goes by its shadow moves uh, in relation to the ground and this is because the sun is moving in relation to earth as the earth rotates around the sun back when this was invented they thought that the sun was moving around the earth but we know that's not true Um, and so as this was invented and then there's kind of a similar mechanism there's a pendulum clock where you would there's one of these in the museum of science in boston and i'm sure you can find pictures of it online uh but basically you have a pendulum and it's swinging back and forth and as the day goes by and the earth rotates the direction of this pendulum will change. And the pendulum is allowed to swing not just left to right, but in all directions. Uh, So it's swinging left to right, but it's moving in this kind of circular pattern back and forth over the day. Uh, And what they would do is they basically set up these little like tiles that are standing up around this circle. And as the day goes by, uh, the pendulum will swing and it'll hit these tiles and knock them over and you can keep track of how many hours have gone by from this, uh, which is really fascinating. Um, and it's based on just the rotation of Earth. Uh, so then we get to hourglasses and sand clocks. So this you just have basically like a, an hourglass shape and you have the sand going through and hitting the bottom and it takes a certain amount of time for this to drain. So this is pretty good, but you have to flip it and you have to keep track of flipping it and you can't really tell all of the time in between when it starts and finishes. You know well, this is gonna take me three minutes or this is gonna take me an hour but you don't really know well how much of that hour has gone by, how much of those three minutes have gone by. Um, probably that's because of the shape and it's, it's just really not as accurate as some other stuff. So in order to try to improve the accuracy of timekeeping, they invented the water clock. So, this is really simple. Uh, it was basically just like a like a funnel, like the top half of an hourglass, and it would have markings on it that would indicate time. And so, it would have a hole in the bottom, and as this thing drains, you can see, oh, it's been one hour, it's been two hours, three hours, uh, and you can you can watch the time pass through this, or they would do literally just the opposite, where they'd have a bucket closed on the bottom, and they would mark off times, and they would just get water, 
and just pump it into the bucket and they knew it takes this long for the water to go in here and this long for the water to go in here. The problem with this is that these markings can't be uh, completely consistent on the, the draining water clocks because we know with Bernoulli's equations, um, pressure changes will change the flow rate of the water and as more water drains, the water will drain with less pressure more slowly. So these markings weren't necessarily drawn on the water clock linearly. Uh, they were, it was more of a uh, curved equation that they had going on. Um, so this is great. What's, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that kind of timekeeping? Uh, well, nautical people and seamen had some issues with this because they wanted to know where they were and in order to know where you are at sea you need to find your longitude and so longitude is based on basically the earth is divided into 24 time zones for 24 hours and each time zone is 15 degrees apart 360 divided by 24 15 uh so in order to know your longitude, they developed this uh, device called the sextant. And the sextant could use a celestial body and the horizon and get from those from that angle, basically, and from the time you could get your longitude. So, that's great, but now you need your time at sea. So... The sundial isn't really going to work at sea because you're moving around and the sundial needs to be stationary. This, the uh, time turner isn't really going to work, or hourglass isn't really going to work at sea either because it's being jostled around uh, on a moving ship. So that's kind of annoying. It's not going to be as accurate. Water clocks would be a nightmare at sea because it's like trying to read a measuring cup uh, on a moving boat that's <laughs> just flowing around. It's like trying to read, reading a measuring cup while you're shaking it. Uh, and so they're like, well, we need some other more accurate way to tell time that's not going to be a fucking disaster. So this is when the beginning of modern clocks became a thing. So think about attaching a weight you have a weight on a chain, and you wrap this chain around a wheel. Now, if you let that weight go, it's going to pull on the chain, and the wheel is going to unwind. Now, that's great, but as the weight is falling, it's going to speed up, because gravity is acceleration. And so, as this is speeding up, it's going to speed up the wheel. So that's not a good way to keep steady time because you need to be constant, you can't have something accelerating. So, in order to combat this, they came up with the first um, escapement. So, if you look up escapements, if you're interested and have time, uh, it's basically just all of these different mechanical ways to take uh, something that has traditionally exponential power, like a weight falling, or like a spring unwinding, and to make it into linear power, so a constant force. So, what this escapement does is picture if we have our bike wheel, but we replace it with a gear. And so this gear has prongs, but all of the prongs are going to be angled in one direction. So they're 
changing direction as they go around, and they're all at the same angle in relation to the wheel. So this way, the gear can basically only go one way, right? So then, we have, it's called an anchor escapement, and because basically the top part kind of looks like an anchor. You have these two prongs coming down at an angle, uh, forming like a triangle, and then you have these two little prongs at the end of those pointing in towards the gear. And so, as the weight is falling, um, you have this anchor on a pendulum. The pendulum is swinging back and forth. And so the anchor is swinging back and forth, and the pendulum is going to catch the gear, the anchor is going to catch the gear, and it's going to give it a little bit of energy with that pendulum to rotate a little more because of this weight that's coming down, and then it's going to catch again. And so what this does is it makes it so you have this constant rate of power that's, de that's uh, decreasing over time, instead of having like an exponential change in power over time. So you can accurately have like a constant timekeeping from this, which is really revolutionary. Uh, so, where was I going with this? Um, so basically to try to put this on a boat, well now things get a little weirder because again, boats are rocky and you, your pendulum can't be super accurate and constant when you're on this moving ship. So they decided, well, what about using a spring? Because a spring, as you wind it up, and it holds a lot of power, and then it can unwind. But again, when it unwinds, it's giving off an exponential power instead of a constant power. So they came up with the uh, what's modern escapement used in a lot of today watches, which is the balance wheel. So basically, it's a little wheel with a what they call a hairspring, and the hairspring. Uh, winds and unwinds, and it's getting power from this little, it's like a pallet fork, it's called, uh, and so it whacks part of this wheel back and forth, and the spring attached to this wheel winds and unwinds, and this makes, basically gives it a constant power coming from the main spring, which is the big spring with all of the energy that's pushing this pallet fork. So, on t in, in today's watches, if you get a mechanical watch, uh, this is probably going to happen about six beats per second. And uh, so, if you if you look at like a Rolex or like a any mechanical watch, really, uh, Rolex is known for they don't they don't tick, they glide. That's because of this mechanical thing. It's still ticking. It's just ticking at about six beats per second with this uh, with this oscillating escapement. Uh, so all mechanical watches will glide, not tick. So if you have a ticking watch, you know that it's not mechanical, it's battery powered. So uh, this is really cool, but again we have problems where if you whack this, if this spring gets jostled around it all, all of a sudden this, this little spring, the hairspring and the balance wheel, if they get off balance or they get shaken a little bit, all of a sudden you don't have accurate timekeeping again. So, basically, they put the watch on, or the, the clock, on kind of like a bunch of, like, like sort of like a gyroscope. So they had it kind of floating, and they had it in a way that, uh, sort of with like a, uh, sorry, I'm blanking on the term, um, 
oh, like a steady cam mechanism. So the boat and the surroundings can move, but it'll sort of keep the watch steady. So you can have much more accurate timekeeping uh, on boats, which is really good. So as this is being developed, there are other uses for watches as well. Um, and one of them is astronomy. So they wanted to see how long things take. This is taking place in like the 1800s. Uh, they wanted to see how late 1700s, early 1800s, uh, they basically wanted to know how uh, stars move and they wanted to be able to time, put down locations and times of stars. So the first chronograph was invented. Now, a chronograph is basically just a mechanical stopwatch. So, I won't get into the uh, mechanics of how this works, but it was a lot trickier and uh, a little bit more complicated, but they were able to do this for astronomy. And then in 1821, it was downsized and kind of refined for King Louis XVIII. Now, why would he want a chronograph? He liked to bet on horses, and he liked watching horse races. And so with a chronograph, you can time the horses and uh, make better bets based on how fast they're going. So this became a thing, and then it was more uh, commercialized for not... You think of watches as, like, fancy watches for fancy people uh, and rich people, but really chronographs were invented for kind of the poor people and people who bet on horse races a lot uh, as kind of an aid to do this uh, and hopefully help them get some money. Uh, but yeah, and so as this is developed um, with, our, with our spring clocks and it becomes smaller and more accurate and pocket watches become a thing. So Basically, you could get a watch in, you could get a clock in like this box that was sitting in this gyroscope, and you would use that on a ship or for a horse race if it was a chronograph. Um, and the chronometer, which is basically just a really accurate clock, and there are like regulations in Switzerland for what has to be, how accurate something needs in or to be in order to be a chrono, uh, a chronometer. Um, it has based on how many seconds it loses per day and it's down to like plus or minus like 1.5 seconds a day or I'm blanking on the numbers uh, but it's pretty narrow so those are gonna be super accurate clocks and those are generally like today they're more expensive uh, than just any old clock but so pocket watches became a thing and people kept the time on them uh, so they could check them but if you think about a pocket watch sitting in a jacket pocket, the gravity is going to pull on the spring, this, this oscillating spring on the balance wheel, and it's going to throw it off a little bit. So, in 1795, uh, the tourbillon was invented. So the tourbillon is this mechanism that some watches have, not a lot of them, pretty rare, uh, but it's worth a lot if the watch has a tourbillon. And it basically rotates the whole escapement in the clock. So the idea behind this is that if it's sitting in a pocket watch, no one point will be pulled down more because of gravity because it's just being rotated. So this is constant. 
so it keeps the watch more accurate. Um, and so then in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, big watch brands uh, were really establishing themselves and watches were becoming, or clocks, sorry, and pocket watches were becoming a lot more uh, commercialized um, in the early to the early 1900s. About the 20s, uh, the first fully waterproof watches were coming out, like the Rolex Oyster, uh, and Rolex really became a prestigious brand. Um, so, in the World Wars, uh, watches watches were a thing, uh, but pocket watches were really much more popular. And then it wasn't until basically in World War One. A lot of people, a lot of soldiers would be fighting and they'd have their pocket watch and they'd want to check the time and they wouldn't want to have to like put down everything and get their clock out of their pocket to check the time. So a lot of them started just sort of uh, like soldering little bars to either side of the pocket watch and they would put it on a strap on their wrist. And this is how the watch became a thing uh, as we know it. And... So during the World Wars, this is a big thing for watch companies started, or clock companies started making watches for the first time. Um, People started using uh, chronometers to time different things. Uh, So there was this one guy, there's a story of a guy who was in a German, imprisoned in a German camp, and uh, was going to be killed, and so he was able to order a chronometer from, I forget if it was Omega or Rolex, but uh, he was able to order a chronometer and he used this chronometer that he got to time the guard's movements. And so he could get really accurately when they were going to be around and when they weren't and how long they were going to be in certain places for. So when this happened, then he was able to actually escape and help a lot of people uh, escape uh, this camp using this watch, so that's kind of cool. Um, yeah, so in World War Two, pilot watches became a thing. So there's a very famous story of basically the Allied powers needed um, watches for their pilots because when you're flying, you need to know what time it is and you need to do things in sync with other pilots that you're flying with, like drop bombs and stuff. So they couldn't just put a clock inside a plane because it wasn't going to stay really accurate. So they had these big watches made. They're like 55 millimeters, some of them 45 millimeters, and they have big numbers, and they commissioned, like, I want to say five or six different companies to uh, make these watches, and they all have, they use, um, I think it's, I forget what it is, they use this radioactive glow-in-the-dark uh, coding on all of the numbers so you can read it at night. It's very clear to read. Uh, they have a subdial for the seconds hand, um, so that's tiny. And basically, at the beginning of the mission, each uh, pilot would be given a watch. They synchronize them. Then they uh, go out. They fly on the mission, and then when they're done, they would have to give these watches back and they would be maintenance and stuff all the time. And uh, so all the companies, or I think most of them, that made these watches, there's not a lot of them, and they weren't kept very well care of uh, in terms of just getting beaten up from use all the time. 
but a lot of them are still around today, and so people make it a goal to collect one of these original watches from each brand because there's they produced so few of them. Um, but a lot of these brands still produce like traditional style watches of the original pilot watches. It's like Laco, um, Longa e Soy. I'm sorry, I can't pronounce it. <laughs> but yeah, a lot of these are Swiss brands or German brands. Um, and then, so, what else? Oh, so, also in World War II, um, Omega started making watches for the British Navy. And so they made what is currently known as the Seamaster. It was a waterproof or somewhat waterproof watch. And there were different versions of it for different ranks. And basically, that's why James Bond, the character, is... Uh, supposedly ex-British Navy, and so that's why he always wears an Omega watch. And in the older movies, he wore a Rolex, but the costume designer decided to change that uh, to make it more accurate to the character. So, so uh, after the war was over, um, Omega ended up kind of refining the Seamaster, and it came out in, I want to say the late 50s, and was really popular in the early 60s, uh, and is still popular today. It's been very refined and made more towards a dining, diving watch. Uh, if you get, like, the Seamaster or the Rolex Submariner, which is an equivalent, um, and there's a few different editions of the Seamaster. Some of them are more uh, of dress watches, some of them are more of sports watches, but this is because it, that was kind of inspired by uh, what was going on in the British Navy with these watches and how they were being used and uh, kind of representative of rank as well. So I actually uh, recently bought my my first big watch purchase uh, was a vintage Omega Seamaster uh, from 1964 and it's absolutely beautiful. I love it so much. The movement is still in great condition. Uh, it keeps very good time. Uh, it's It wasn't too expensive either for a watch. Uh, it was about $450, I think. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was my first big purchase, and I absolutely love it. Uh, and I'm going to keep it for a very long time. Uh, so, yeah. So then... Watches, you, one thing you have to understand is they're not just a luxury. Uh, they were all designed with very essential pur purposes. So pilot watches, like I said, are built to be accurate when you're flying and visible, very visible and uh, accurate and visible in the dark uh, with the big numbers. Uh, they could go over flight gear. Uh, field watches were designed to really kind of be visible as well, but have, uh, like, good cases and be not very breakable or delicate like a dress watch is. It's more casual. Uh, there's also racing watches. So as in, like, think about the 1920s, cars are becoming a thing and car racing is becoming a thing, um, speedometers aren't necessarily a thing yet. Uh, and so a lot of times... Car, like race car drivers would get chronometers, chronometer watches like the Rolex Daytona 
or the Omega um, Speedmaster, and they would use this to with a tachyometer. Tachyometer. I'm super bad with the pronunciations again, uh, but to basically calculate their speed uh, based on how long it takes them to go one lap of the racetrack. Uh, so after uh, this, then the Seamaster is becoming a diving watch, uh, where basically they're testing how waterproof this case is, how far can it down can it go, and they're making this watch very pressure resistant and. Uh, they're making a watch that is going to glow in the dark underwater, and basically when you're diving, if you've ever gone scuba diving, which I have not, uh, when you can only stay at certain levels for so long, and you have to stay at certain levels for so long when you're coming up, so it's really good to have a watch to be able to keep track of that time, and you only have so much air, and it's only going to last you so, so long uh, in your tank, so you need to keep track of all of this uh, and so diving watches were used a lot in this uh, before the, like, the modern smartwatch was invented even, uh, which was only a few years ago. So as diving watches are getting more accurate, they run into this problem and as they are going deeper. So if you think about helium, helium is very small. So it's one thing to keep water out of something, but helium kept sneaking into the watches. And then as you're going up, the helium expands, uh, and it would like blow the watch apart, and it was a really big problem. So they created this helium valve, which is in most it's it's some it's very pronounced in some watches. It's not very pronounced in others. Uh, but yeah, the screw down cap, uh, which is like the the crown, uh, screws down to keep extra water out. Uh, the ring gasket, which was invented in the 1920s to keep water out of the original uh, Rolex oysters, and then now this helium valve for very deep sea diving. Uh, like I said, yeah, it's very pronounced on a lot of Omega watches like the Seamaster, and it has HE on the side. It's less pronounced on a lot of other watches. Different people have different opinions on this. Uh, <laughs> I think it's, it's cool on some watches and extra on others, uh, but yeah, this this became a thing to really protect the watch, and it was made so that helium can leave the watch, but it can't come in the watch. So or helium can leave the watch as you're rising up uh, out of the water or into lower pressure. So in the 1940s and 50s, um, Omega decided that they wanted not they didn't want watches to just be a thing for people who go scuba diving and race car drivers, uh, these really flashy careers. So uh, they decided to do something a little different. They developed a watch movement in like the 40s, 50s uh, that was able to withstand. Uh, stronger magnetic fields, so up to like 1500 Gauss, I think, uh, was the original. So they called it the Railmaster, <laughs> which is a bad name in my opinion, for obvious reasons. But uh, they, it was really marketed towards like mechanics, engineers, like train engineers, um, electricians, that kind of jobs where you're around electricity and magnets a lot, and they wanted to have a watch for 
people in these careers that was a little lower priced and that would withstand because if you think about a watch i mean put a magnet near something it's gonna totally screw with whatever metal is inside and uh movements are very often made of copper because they're less susceptible to that but they wanted to really make uh, a watch that could withstand this kind of stuff and put it at a lower price so that they could sell to uh, middle class people uh, in the 50s so this was really cool and kind of brought uh, watches into more than just rich people uh, and watches became a very common thing for like everybody wore a watch and quartz watches watches with uh, batteries hadn't become a thing yet so everybody was buying these mechanical watches and at the time when a lot of these watch companies were starting manufacturing was very very cheap in switzerland nowadays it's very cheap in china but it was very very cheap in switzerland so all of these watch companies for the most part uh rather good watch companies that we view today like rolex and um ap and uh these these luxury brands are all swiss born and swiss made um and that's kind of an advertising thing that we're, we're one of the originals whereas uh today it's cheaper to produce movements in china it's kind of the companies that go above that that are the og brands that are still swiss made and a lot of companies uh that are chinese based like sterling and will or invicta will kind of fake this Swiss heritage uh, and watch people see right through it, um, but not watch people often fall for it and think they're getting a really nice watch for a really great price. If you don't care about the brand stuff, like absolutely go for it because a mechanical movement is a mechanical movement and that's a feat of engineering uh, and a testament to time. But if you want like the real like honor that comes or not honor that's overstating it but if you want the history of the watch and the uh heritage and uh horology history of watches that that comes with it then that's kind of what people look to when they when they see the value in a Rolex watch versus the value in uh like a cheap Chinese watch or like a cheaper lower-end watches that are kind of considered fashion watches. So this brings us to uh, the the moon landing. So watches have been used underwater for race car driving, for airplanes. Now they're used in space. Uh, so for the Apollo missions, um, Omega's uh, Speedmaster, and they call it the Speedmaster Moon Phase, uh, and they have a bunch of different editions of it, because it was used in the Apollo missions and in, uh, the moon landing to basically time how long are you in this phase, uh, of how long is the rocket on this trajectory for, so when, when it lifts off for a first little while, it's going straight up, and then after a certain amount of time, it needs to tilt a certain amount, and so... And then it needs to tilt more, and as it's getting into orbit, and as you're timing orbits and leaving orbits and trajectories, timing is very important in all of this. So, the U.S. and NASA 
decided to use Omega and give the astronauts uh, Omega Speedmaster watches to time all of this, and they're still used today, I'm pretty sure, but Omega likes to advertise this a lot, and they have different editions of their watch with moon, uh, with astronauts on them, and moons on them, and astronaut, sorry, spacesuit boot prints on them, and all kinds of stuff, uh, to try to hype people up about this, because it is pretty exciting. Um, and they said, we have, like, uh, the Rolex Daytona, which is their chronometer, or the racing chronometer, uh, and Paul Newman had it, and, uh, he had one of them, it was a panda, which means it's black and white on the dial, and it's a very polished look, uh, very classic, and, so he had this watch, and it more recently sold for I think eleven million dollars. Uh, this is Paul Newman's original one, but uh, that style is very iconic and uh, historically. So, so as we move into that's space moon landing sixties in the seventies, all of a sudden there's what happens. It's called the uh, they call it the quartz crisis. Now it sounds horrible. Uh, basically quartz watches became a thing. So this is a watch with a battery. So they tick, they don't sweep. Um, they have a battery and they basically, it uses a little tiny circuit and it has a piece of quartz crystal and you run uh, electricity through it and it creates these uh, electromagnetic like oscillations. And based on these oscillations, it tells it how much to tick. And so that's what regulates the timing of it. It's super simple super cheap to make, but it absolutely rocked the Swiss watch market and all of these companies that had been uh, developing this insanely accurate mechanical technology and with these chronometer regulations and all of this stuff, it was like, oh my god, this is the end of watches as we know it, what's gonna happen? Because uh, everybody didn't need a need a fancy Swiss watch now, or they, everybody didn't, uh, buy fancy Swiss, watch, Swiss watches now, uh, because you could get them for so cheap, and, uh, they started producing them in China a lot, uh, and so it, it was really scary. <laughs> I, I can imagine I wasn't alive, um, but, yeah, so, this is, watch people often look down on, like, quartz watches, and, they're not they're not bad. If you need a watch and you just want it to tell you the time and that's all you're concerned with, absolutely go for like a quartz watch. The thing about mechanical watches is like so they have the spring in them that gives them power, right? But so you have to wind it. So you'll either wind that with uh the the crown, you can just turn it and it'll wind it up or there's what's called an automatic movement where it has this weight that sits on it that's attached to it and as it sits on your wrist and you move around during the day the weight slowly turns this gear as it's being shaken back and forth uh, by you walking or whatever and it winds this for you so this it lasts a lot longer uh, there's also they've been working for a long time to uh, create like larger power banks so in one mainspring some watches a mainspring will last a day, some watches a mainspring will last like three or four days even, and they went even further to add these complications to it, uh, like telling the date and the time, or the date is of course the time, uh, but 
telling the date, uh, perpetual calendars that can keep track of the date over years, uh, as long as it's still running, um, and they can keep track of leap years even. That's a really big deal this past leap year. Uh, on all the watch forums, people are posting pictures of their of their watches uh, showing the right date, and they didn't have to set it that way or correct anything, and that's expensive to buy, but it's really important to, to people who have them and uh, is really valued. Um, because it's just it's just such a feat of like mechanical engineering. It's not even about flexing money or anything. It's just like look at this beautiful little piece of art that I can wear that is just a historical feat of mechanical engineering. It's absolutely amazing. Um but back on the quartz crisis. So people were really worried now that like well all of this mechanical work and all these companies that have spent hundreds of years perfecting this craft, what's going to happen to it? At the end of the day, like, it's taken a hit, but it's not the end of the world. And I hope it's not the end of the watch industry. Uh, the watch industry is still churning out watches. Uh, and of course there is, like, I'm sure you've heard of MVMT. They advertise a lot, or movement. Um, they advertise watches a lot. And... They advertise like, oh, you're getting these beautiful watches for a cheap price. They use these quartz movements, which are ch extremely cheap to make. They use cheap, uh, like, Chinese materials. If you buy an Omega or a Rolex or a, like, AP, you're paying money for, like, titanium band, titanium uh, enclosures. And, like, the, the dome, the crystal, the glass part of the watch that, that you look through... It's not just glass. It could be mineral crystal. It could be, um, like, sapphire or, uh, like, sapphire is even low-end. But it, it, they put these materials in them to make it so it doesn't scratch easily, uh, to make it really strong to hold up uh, against whatever it's being banged against uh, throughout your daily life. They put so much... Uh, work and money into making this watch that yeah it's expensive but it's something that's going to last you a really really long time and it's built to last a really long time um, whereas MVMT is passing it off as oh we're just as good as Rolex but we're giving you a better price that's definitely not the case um, and they're giving you a horrible price uh, because if you if you just want like a quartz watch that looks nice you can get that for so cheap you can get that even from a older company like Timex was founded in uh, the late 1800s and so they have some some hor horological significance uh, if you're interested in the history and stuff and want that and they still have watches for like 20 bucks that are that are quartz but you the thing is just like uh, like MVMT and Vincero and Invicta they're so focused on the status of watches and of a watch must be valuable and we're giving it to you for such a bargain but it's it's really not and people can people can see through that very easily so i would advise if you just want a watch to just tell the time just get something cheap and don't and don't go for mvmt because they're overpriced they're so overpriced get 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 a, you can get a time timex from walmart for uh, that's gonna do the same thing just as well, that'll look really nice for so much cheaper. So, the other thing is, with the quartz crisis, so, uh, 
quartz movements aren't all that bad. They're not as cool with mechanical engineering, but they're still really good. So there are things like the Echo Drive watches, which is, that's a trademarked, I forget what company makes the Echo Drive movement, but it's uh, solar powered. And there's G-Shock watches, which have uh, like really resistant casing so you can take it hiking or skiing and it won't uh, wreck the watch. Um, and these, these watches are really good. If, if I was going to go on like a camping trip and I didn't know like how much cell reception there was going to be or if my phone was going to die, I would absolutely take one of these watches. Mechanical watches are nice, but like I just wouldn't bring one on that kind of a thing if, if that's what I need a watch for. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it'll recharge from the sun. That's really nice. And then today we also have the uh, atomic clock, which is based on, uh, it's a little bit of a different, it still uses a quartz movement generally to keep track of time, but it also uses, so there's a, in Boulder, Colorado, there is basically a hunk of cesium that is decaying and it uses this decay and we know the half-life of it and so we can time up how much of it has decayed and with basically this radio frequency and so every hour it keeps track of when an hour has passed with this decaying uh, cesium and then at the hour mark sends out a radio radio signal over a certain frequency, and all of, if you ever buy an atomic clock, uh, it'll tune into that, and it'll reset itself every hour when this chimes based on this uh, atomic clock in Colorado. So that's really cool, and that's another way of keeping very accurate time. Your phone uses satellites to check in and make sure it has the correct time. Um, if you go to, I forget the, if you look up the atomic clock in Boulder, Colorado, um, you will get the site for it and they will tell you how accurate the uh, clock on your computer or phone is. And I, I think on mine it was off, it was like plus point nine five nine seven five seconds so that's a very small amount but it's just interesting that it can it can pick up on that um oh that was kind of funny but yeah so today we have watches like the the yacht master this was developed a little while ago too that was developed uh with the purpose of timing yacht races so basically if you're in a sailing race you need to tack you, there's this start line, and you go back and forth uh, across the start line, and then you can't touch the start line until the start happens, though. So you're going back and forth, and then you have to go all the way back, and then you want to be going forward as fast as you can, right when they, and you want to hit the start line right when they say start. So in order to time this and to make sure that you're going to be far enough away from the start line, that you're going to pick up enough speed and hit the start line at the when it says start and not have to go back and lose your speed, the the yacht master was used. So it has the Rolex watch with the same waterproofing uh, technology that Rolex has developed in a lot of their watches from the Oyster watches, um, and it has the or the yacht master two at least, which is one of the originals, uh, has the same 
what's it called? Chronograph uh, technology to time this that uh, a lot of the racing watches have. So it's kind of an interesting combination of uh, the racing watches and the diving watches, I think. Um, but yeah, so today we have watches like Fossil and Vincero and MVMT and more fashion brands. We also have brands like Seiko and uh, Casio, which often make a lot of uh, mechanical movements, but they are Chinese made and those are generally a little bit more nicely priced. They still have some history to them. Uh, same thing with Timex. Uh, and a lot of times they're manufactured in Japan or China, but they still have a lot of history and stuff to them. And then there's the Swiss brands, which are considered like the highest of the high, uh, like AP, um, Rolex, uh, Patek Philippe. Uh, I like Omega a lot, even though they're not really one of the top three or lounge, but yeah, that's the history of watches. <laughs> uh, I hope you learned something and enjoyed it. Uh, thanks for listening.